My role is not to get everything done perfectly. My role is to actually help everybody do their job better. And so if I can focus on just enabling every team to function to their best and uh, be there to assist them, put in processes that would help them communicate the necessary information to help them, then I'm playing my role correctly. If I dive too deep into the weeds or I tell them, hey, here's how you do it, I think I can only be successful in certain areas, but not globally across the organization. Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Introducing Gladys Kong, the Chief Operating Officer of NEAR. Join us on the Second Command podcast today as we welcome Gladys Kong, the accomplished COO of NEAR, with an impressive background in building Uber Media and leading teams across India, Australia, and Europe. Gladys brings a wealth of experience to the table. As a former CEO and now COO, Gladys will share her insights on the transition between these roles and the valuable lessons she's learned along the way. She'll also discuss the impact of acquisitions on NEAR and the cultural shifts brought about by the pandemic. Don't miss this opportunity to gain valuable knowledge from Gladys Kong as she offers her perspectives on leadership, growth, and navigating the ever-changing business landscape. Tune into the Second in Command podcast for an engaging conversation that will leave you inspired and ready to tackle your own leadership challenges. Please also check us out on our Second in Command podcast YouTube channel as well. So Gladys, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, looking forward to learning from you today. So it's interesting. You were at one point the CEO of a company based in the United States and, and you've merged or were acquired by more of a global brand. Is that true? And can you walk us through kind of how that went? Yeah, that's correct. Um, so I ran a company for about 10 years in the US uh, called UM, UberMedia.com. And in 2020, we started talking to NIR, which is a global company started in Singapore. And in 2021, we completed a, an acquisition. So NIR, um, so Uber Media became part of NIR and I joined NIR in 2021. All right. What was that like being acquired by them? And, and you know, how did your role start to transition from really being the entrepreneur, CEO, running the business to now being part of a global team and a global brand and being the COO? Yeah, um, it's quite a transition. If you add in, uh, a lot of people probably forgotten that uh, the pandemic was there too in 2021. So uh, the whole process was uh, interesting in that I never met the near team in person until late in the transaction because of the world being closed and travel at the time. And so it was it was great in that we learn uh, a lot about how to become a bigger company and a global company. And that prospect was exciting to me to take a, a small um, US company and merge it to become a larger global company. And so I learned a lot in the process of even completing the merger. And then once we combined in 2021, I felt like we started running a marathon at the speed of a sprint. Because there's so much in the growth, so much uh, going on in fundraising, and then ultimately decided to take the path to become a public company. 
So that journey feels like it was very happening very fast and growing very at a very rapid place, pace. And did you become a public company um, that happened after the acquisition then? So while oh, you- yeah, after it's a, uh, we just became public in March this year. Oh, right. So let's let's go back um, and talk about that. I want to get kind of get into what that was like, what the the transaction was like, what some of your lessons were like, what were the I'm sure it was all super easy, right? <laughs> I would say none of it is easy. <laughs> quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. What, what were the lessons? What do you what do you think you pulled from that that um, that period of transaction? I think um, we are a group of entrepreneurs that we are super optimistic and we went on to this thinking we know exactly what we need to get done. And that was never the case. You just learn a lot along the journey and it's actually quite complicated and it requires a lot more than optimism and our skills as entrepreneur. A lot of it is uh, procedural. A lot of it is just uh, the whole process needs a lot of detailed attention. And so I feel as a group of entrepreneurs, we all learned a lot in the past 18, 24 months, and myself especially. What would what would some of the lessons be that you did learn? And, and could you flip it and and go from, from here's some of the lessons, but could you give some advice to people if, if there are people out there that are going to be going through a similar transaction? Yeah, I think part as part of the merger first, I think if I were to do it again, the lessons I learned was we got to have the plan ahead. What would it really be like to operate as a combined company? I feel uh, that we obviously we're trying to combine preserving what, what, what made the companies worked before and trying to continue to run as such. But I feel when you combined multiple companies, you need to figure out the, the right process to really uh, combine the process in an optimized function, uh, function to effectively operate a business. And I think that if I were to do it again, I would make a much more solid plan and set the expectation correctly uh, with other employees because changes will come. And I felt we'd go into it being very optimistic and maybe a lot of things can be the same, but it, in retrospect, it couldn't be. Right. What are the things, what are the core parts of the businesses that you should merge or combine first? And what do you think that you maybe tried to combine or merge too early that you could have, you know, delayed or or let go for a little longer? The products, and uh, if they are similar products, we ultimately were managing too many products. Then we decide to integrate uh, and make sure that we have a very cohesive product as one company. I think that could have happened sooner. Um, and I don't think we did anything too soon. I think we probably waited too long to do everything where there was a period of no change. And then all of a sudden we realized uh, we really need to make some changes. And I think the expectation was a little bit rapid there. What What are some of the changes that you would say companies should do quite early then? I think the the planning of how the teams were to work together with a focus of what team is responsible for what and how we work together and communicate uh, as a global team. Those are things that I would probably make better plans if I were to do something like this again. What do you think changes, you know, your perspective must have really shifted as well from being a U.S. company where most of your companies just or most of your employees, U.S. US employees. What's changed for you as a leader? 
what changed me is I, I need to think about when I communicate, what are the team members hearing? Because if I was speaking to the Asian team versus the US team, I feel the same words may be taken differently. So even my uh, the way I communicate has to be more tailored to the audience. And just to make sure everybody received the same message, sometimes it cannot be the same words. Or, or sometimes I have to elaborate a little more so that everybody understand because there is cultural differences, how people hear uh, what is being said. I also think it's different in that the US team will be less uh, concerned about raising their hand and asking me your questions. And sometimes I have to draw it out from the uh, India-based team because they are a little more shy and introverted and they may not be as comfortable asking questions. So I may have more one-on-ones or smaller settings uh, to really kind of seek feedback from them. Yeah, it's interesting how how that actually happens. I was coaching a second in command who is from Thailand and they're about a 5,000 person company and, and there was something that he needed to tell the CEO. And I'm like, just go in and talk to him, lay it out, show them. He's like, oh no, I couldn't, I could never. I'm like, no dude, like you have to. And I think if, if this was in the United States, they would have done this ages ago, you know, probably three layers below they right, right in. So how, how do you draw that in? How do you draw that out? How do you get them to communicate and feel safe and, and feel like, you know, it's important to do that? Yeah, I feel, a lot of it has to be uh, based on trust and trust cannot just happen overnight. So it's built over time. So I think it's over the course of many interactions and many conversations that you start learning that trust and you start um, making the other party feel safe about giving feedback and that you follow through and make sure that they're hurt and that they uh, see actions that come from their feedback that is positive. So I think it's a process. I think it's very difficult to come in on day one and say, well, you should do this differently. I, th- I think it's over time that you build that relationship. What do you think that they do better in, you know, in countries like India when it comes to teams or communications? Like, are there stuff that they're doing well over there that we can learn from? Work life is more integrated in a, uh, in a place like India. I feel the team is really bonded over work, but also the office is the place they gather four or five days a week uh, now and, and they eat lunch together. They they have breakfast together sometimes and they go to coffee. Like it's a much tighter work unit because they stay in the same office. I think U.S. in the last couple of years, um, employees have pretty spread out and work from home. The, the way to build that relationship is a little bit different than in India where I feel they work very closely together. They sometimes carpool to work. They sometimes, um, you know, take the same transportation to work. So I think there is a better, uh, a closer integration of work and life um, there. And you, you guys have been involved in a few acquisitions in the last few years as well. So in doing acquisitions now, where you're the acquiring company, any good lessons that you can pass on there? Any pitfalls? Anything that you've kind of struggled with? So if I were to do this now as the acquirer, I would probably uh, share my experience being the company that was acquired and and kind of set the expectation. Here's what we're going to do. Here's the plan. And uh, things are going to change and here's how it's going to change and how we should communicate with the team to make sure they are aware these changes are, are coming and here's what to expect. So I would, uh, I would 
be in a better position now that I've been on both sides to to do this. Yeah, I like that. Now, in your role, you've also transitioned now from being the CEO to the COO. What changes? What what are the big differences between those two roles from your perspective? You're one of the rare people who have done, you know, done both roles. Some people go from COO into CEO, some from the CEO into COO. What what are the differences from the two roles that you've played? For me personally, uh being the COO, I get to not have to do as much of the stuff that I don't really like to do as <laughs> a CEO. CEO. See, uh, I actually don't like to speak publicly that much. So being the CEO, sometimes I have to do a lot of that. And I feel that I don't have to do as much right now. Managing relationship with board members, investors, that also is not something that I, I have to do right now because our CEO has uh, taken that. So I get to focus on what I really love to do the most is really working with teams and kind of helping them be them their best selves and, and put in processes that help make the company operate more effectively. Those are things that I love doing. Uh, but being a CEO, you kind of have to do everything. And now I get to focus more on the things that I actually really love to do. And the, the systems and processes that you focus on, are they from specific business areas normally, or is it across the organization? And is it, you know, is it automating workflows or? Yeah, so or I think about? it's a, a, a lot of across the entire organization, especially uh, try to build this into one company globally, uh, communication and uh, new processes to help everybody kind of get into the rhythm of how to do this together is necessary and also interesting to me because I've only built a U.S. organization. So a lot of that uh, global processes is uh, what we focus on and, and working on. Automation is definitely one um, that uh, we, we, we do. But a lot of what we've currently focused on is how to build one company, one platform, and uh, with a global employee base. I love it. All right. I want you to walk us through a little bit about what NEAR is, what, what the company does, who your customers are, and then we can kind of go into some questions around that as well. Great. So NEAR is a data intelligence company. That's kind of a, a new term, intelligence, in that we help uh, companies or organizations uh, make strategic decisions based on providing global consumer behavior data. So any company that are looking to gain some insights or understand, predict trends, places and people, that's what we are there to provide, is to provide insights to help them make better strategic decisions. And is it just is it monthly feed that you have with them? Is it you know project by project basis? And so it is mostly a, a licensing, a platform licensing model. Um, there are times that we do uh, add professional services to what we do to help customize the platform usage for the company's needs. Who are, who are some of your customers or what are the types of customers maybe that you yeah, have? Yeah, so the verticals that we are uh, mostly, uh, most of our customer falls into is retail that includes big box, groceries, and um, just generally the, the category of retail, shopping malls, and restaurants, uh, fast food restaurants, quick service, um, and also just uh, large change real estate companies, as well as uh, travel and tourism. Those are the four categories that we really focus on. 
Well, and you've got some categories that have been under some pressure recently. I mean, I think with you think of the retailers and travel and uh, I mean, quick service, probably not as much, but how is it working with, you know, industries that are on, under some of that pressure or does it impact? Yeah, you're I actually data? think because of COVID, the pandemic turned a lot of business upside down and the world upside down. And so I think that because of that, data becomes more important because you don't really have historical knowledge to really base your decision on. So looking at data becomes more important to inform what decision you're going to make because the changes happen. It's less predictable than before. And um, just being more informed in how people really move around. And even among different states, as you remember, the opening of it is different. And so people come back to stores differently. People come back to offices differently. So having um, data to actually inform uh, what are the trends like now? Um, how are people actually shopping? Are they going online still? Or some of them are going out because they have a reason to go out. So a lot of that behavior can be informed by our our data to show how people are moving around. That makes a lot of sense. All right, so you've mentioned a couple of times some of the changes due to COVID. How has your organization had to shift You know, post-COVID? Is everybody going back to the office? Are you staying as a hybrid organization? Have you moved full remote? Um, you know, in most regions, we are back in the office. In the US, we're still in hybrid, uh, just because they are a, a more a wider spread of where employees are it's a little bit more challenging to go back. So we, we're still in a hybrid mode and mostly uh, remote in the US, but in Europe and in Asia, we are in Australia also, we are back in the office mostly. Has the culture in, in the USA changed more drastically than some of the global cultures around going back to the office? It Based on my experience, uh, looking at our team, I've I definitely would agree with that statement. It changed more drastically. Is it just because we have, you know, larger homes, more space available to us, and and that, and I think if you look at Los Angeles, uh, traffic is pretty terrible. So, used to spending forty minutes one way to commute, it's just a way of life. Now you're taking almost two hours out of someone's life that they found more useful thing to do, and so I think it's a difficult. Thing to change back versus a Bangalore in India where they're used to the crazy travel anyway so they just nothing's changed I think there is a change too I mean traffic is bad uh, there as well but um I think the office environment I feel is maybe more important for the team and they they don't find it as um as drastic a change to come back to office uh, it's not that they don't find a change. I do think that everywhere else uh, they find a change as well. But I feel U.S. as you highlight, I think it's more drastic. You've got, you know, in, in your role right now, how many employees do they have globally with Near? We have about two hundred and sixty employees globally. Sure. So you're you're running a good, solid, mid-sized organization. You could get sucked into every business area and every single project. How do you avoid getting? too deep into the weeds and and um how do you you kind of balance you know giving your employees time and and growing people with not getting sucked in and doing the work for them i remember a statement that uh, my ceo made to me uh recently and i think that really helped me think about my role my role is not to get everything done perfectly my role is to actually help everybody do their job better 
And so if I can focus on just enabling every team to function to their best and uh, be there to assist them, put in processes that would help them communicate the necessary information to help them, then I'm playing my role correctly. If I dive too deep into the weeds or I tell them, hey, here's how you do it, I think I can only be successful in certain areas, but not globally across the organization. Makes sense. So your role, I mean, or your, your, I guess not role, but you as a leader, where have you been focusing? Where, where has your growth come over the last decade? Uh, I have been before I became a, a CEO. My background is in tech. So I was a CTO before I was a CEO. It's also a kind of a rare path. Yeah. I love building things with people. So that's a very general way to look at it. I usually lead teams to build products. Then I lead the team to build, you know, the company. And so I basically, that's what I love to do is working with a team of people and achieving goals, leading them to achieve their goals. So that's my growth over the years is really how to work with people, how to work with teams, how to help them grow themselves, how to help them grow their team. That's really my focus. And I feel the last couple of years, the growth has been to me is learn how to do that on a global basis. I have only had my experience in the U.S., so learning to work with our European team, which I also manage, and our Asian team and our team in Australia. So just expanding my, my horizon and how to work with um, a team that is uh, spread out geographically and have different culture, but wanting to lead them to achieve the same goals. That really is my personal growth is learn how to do that. And so... How how do you focus on growing and developing people? Do you have like a, an area that you tend to lean on or focus on? Or do you have methodologies that you try to work with people on? I tend to focus on every person is unique. So I care about crafting their growth journey with them. So I tend to listen a lot. I, I meet with people and I sit there and I listen and I learn and I kind of validate by telling them, hey, this is what I observed. Do you do you see that? And so then I give my advice based on what I learned about the person, how I see them growing and having them validate that's really where they want to grow. So I feel that's my strength is in listening and observing and then offering my advice with based on my observation of people. And, and you mentioned that some of that changes globally or with people in different countries. What what do you think is different in terms of developing and growing people based on the cultures or countries that they're in? The vision of growth is different, even if you take a U.S. employee and, and, a, and an India-based employee. Secondly is I, I need to work a little harder to draw what they really want instead of what they think they should be doing. I think in India is a very competitive space, especially in tech. So everybody is trying to get ahead and, and and continue to grow their career. But I'm not sure sometimes they think about their personal growth versus I should be doing this because if I were to become a successful, let's say a software engineer, I should be doing X, Y, and Z. That takes a little bit more understanding and, and also getting to know them that to find a path that they feel is still, you know, right for generally how they're growing, but more tailored to themselves. Because I do think everybody is different. And as they work throughout the years, they discover things about themselves too. And my goal is to help people understand that and find a path and grow beyond when they are in the year someday. 
And how, how about yourself? How are you focusing on growth? Is it with mentors? Are you part of mastermind communities like the CEO of Alliance? Are you reading books, watching videos? What are you doing to grow as a leader? I do a lot of the above in combination. I have mentors that have helped me tremendously in my career. Um, and I have mentors that focus on telling me about um, maybe more of the entrepreneur side, some on more the leadership side. <clears throat> and I really cherish those relationships and conversation. And in my role, I get to also meet other leaders uh, a lot. And sometimes we sit down over uh, a lunch at a conference and we would exchange ideas. And that's also how I learn. I do read books and I, I would say, now it's more correct to say I listen to books a lot more. <laughs> I like to take walks and listen to books. Um, and I also you know, read online and news article and TED Talks. I do a, a, a combination of everything. I'm a very curious person in general. So uh, whenever I see something interesting, I would dive into it and learn something and think it over. I'm also very reflective. So I actually listen to things, think about it, and then maybe apply it in my life. Funny, it's great that you mentioned TED. I've gone to the main five-day TED for about 11 years now, and I have a uh, one of our upcoming guests for our COO Alliance is Ann Morris, who spoke and she did a main stage TED Talk this year. Um, I call it ideas having sex. When when you kind of go for a walk and you listen to the ideas, those ideas kind of merge with other ideas and they spawn into something else. It's often not a direct, oh, I heard that, I'm going to do that. It's like I heard that and it's that plus a couple things become what I'm going to do. Absolutely. And I think the quiet time in the walk allows me to do that. Yeah. I've decided to no longer listen to books when I'm in the gym working out because then my workout sucks. So now I listen to I listen to podcasts in the gym and I listen to books when I'm out walking or as well. So give us a specific way that a leader has helped you grow. You know, you mentioned that you have done some work with mentors and that they've helped you. Is there a specific lesson that you recall from having worked with a mentor? Many. Some early in my career, at different stages of my career, but I do remember. So one lesson that I would still remember today is when I first became a manager, it's hard. You find your own way. And I, I feel there are times that, like most managers, I pick up a management book and I read it and I felt, OK, I know what to do. And when applied to a real human being sitting across from you, sometimes the result varies. And I remember talking to my mentor, who's an HR specialist uh, at the time, and he uh, she told me that um, you can't just apply the same rules for everybody. You got to really understand. It's just like you hold uh, at the time, Lenz Armstrong was winning every Tour de France, right? And so if he wins another one, it's very different. I mean, to me, it, that is, he's already at that level. So he's expected to be at that level. But if someone achieves something, maybe even come in second or third in the Tour de France, but to them, it's a huge leap and their career or the effort, you have to recognize that it's not always just holding the same standard for everyone. And I feel that lessons really help me in evaluating everyone as an individual and not just expected to hold a certain standard, as just hold everyone to the same standard and just focusing on what everyone's skill set is, what everyone's growth, individual growth is. So I think that lesson has helped me tremendously in shaping my career and, and my the way I am. I am as a leader. I love it. Um, all right. Let's go back to the transition between the CTO and the COO. How do those two roles differ? What, what do they do? They have to approach the business in different ways. 
I, they definitely have to approach business in a different way. But as a person, as a leader, I don't think that changed very much. But as a CTO, I'm trying to, uh, I was, when I was in that role, I was trying to build innovative product and solutions. And being at the cutting edge and building something that is uh, unique and uh, stands out in the marketplace is the most important part. Today, when I look at that, if a CTO comes and tells me I've got to build that, i got to ask, like, how do you build it cost-effectively? How do you make it scalable? How do you deploy it across the globe? Those are things that I think about now that I didn't used to think as much about when I was only the CTO. That's interesting. I like that perspective a lot. All right. I want to go back to the 21-year-old Gladys and give her some advice. What advice would you give to the younger you that you know to be true today? I often sit back and think about if I only had the wisdom and experience I have now to relive my 20s and 30s again, how great would that be? <laughs> because, But I guess you're supposed to live those years uh, stupidly. So um, I would say, if I pat myself on the back, I would say there's something I did right over the years that I would tell my 21-year-old self to keep doing is to keep a very positive attitude and a healthy level of optimism because I felt that helped me through life a lot. Uh, some of the things that I would also tell my 21-year-old self, which I tell a lot of uh, people nowadays is don't let fear stand in your way of pursuing anything. You got to factor that in and just give it a shot sometimes. I think a lot of times before anybody stop us, our fears stop ourselves in pursuing some opportunities. We overthink it or we we just fear the consequences may not be what we expect. So I would say that's something I would tell my young self. A couple other things I would tell myself is Keep building those meaningful relationships because I think those go through life with you. I have a friend that I made at uh, age 11 that's still friends with me today. And we don't have to talk every day. We, we talk maybe once every so often. But those are lifetime meaningful relationships. I think that would carry through. That would help us along the way. And the other thing that I think is very important, I would tell myself, live in the present. Really enjoy the journey because I feel as... Myself at a young age, I was always trying to get to the next level, like the next stage. So I worked very hard to get there. And I feel sometimes I didn't live in the present as much and enjoy those moments as much as I should have. So I would say I would balance a little bit more by enjoying the present, but focusing also to advance my career, keep moving forward in life. Well, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this present moment and learning a little bit about you and a little bit about Nier. Gladys Kong, the COO for Nier, thank you so much for sharing with us on the Second Command podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like, share, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our other podcast streaming platforms. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.